once again, this is Nuance, and I am Mike Scala, joined, as always, by Jay Carter with Chips, also known as Timid. He is, yeah, there you go, Takis. He's the hip-hop MC in the chair of BLM Tokyo. I got to try me some of those Takis. You do. You do. These are these are amazing. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Uh, mouth is on fire, but they've got good flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're loved by the internet. You see them in a lot of videos and people do things like crush them up and, and wrap them in things and all this and that. And it's like, you know, where I live, they don't have these things. And so I saw them in the store today. I was just like, let me try that. And so I get it now. I get it. New? I mean, I haven't seen it in the store, I don't think. Um, I, it was in Food Lion. So I, I get it now. So describe it. To me it's spicy what does it taste like um well this is a it's spicy it says fuego it's hot chili pepper and lime it's a tortilla chip and they're kind of like straw shaped and so you just a burst of flavor it's really salty too um but i think you i think you'll like them like i said i, I get it now okay hey, look the Lixa says, what you eating? I am eating Takis. You know about those Takis? What you know about Takis? I think I've heard the name before. I don't think I've seen it, though. Are there challenges, like TikTok challenges, how many you can eat type stuff? Or Maybe. I just know the internet seems to love these. Um, and I'd never, heard, you know, I'd only heard of them on the internet from, you know, viral videos and stuff. And so. Okay, so that's what I'm asking. Is what kind of viral videos are made with them? Oh, um, like I saw one where this guy was like, um, trying different food. Right. And like, um, they say, oh, you should try it by crushing up Takis and then, um, wrapping the mango in the, uh, rolling the mango in the, in the dust and eat it like that. And then he's doing that. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Mango. Yeah. And I can see it. I can see how that would be pretty awesome. But people (laughs) doing different stuff like that. Wait, wait till you go to the bathroom. That's what she says. Uh-oh. Uh no. Speaking of bathroom, you can call me. I, I'm I'm one of the Mario brothers today. Speaking of bathroom, I'm one of the Mario brothers today. A plumber? Yeah. What that so mean? right right before we got on, on the camera today, I went and installed a a bidet for, oh. for my mother. Okay. So I bought I bought one of those uh bidet seats where it has like the 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 wash like the bidet wash and uh-huh. you can connect it to any toilet seat and so i just went in and installed that so i did my plumbing duties today and so yeah so i'm, I'm one of the mario brothers today okay maybe that bidet will come in handy according to lixa <laughs> right so well i've got one in japan because a lot of the places in japan have them yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but mine, like mine is connected to the walls because like, it's so common there that most of the bathrooms come with, uh, an electric outlet right behind the toilet because they know that people use right. these are so common in there. And so mine plugs right into the wall and it has not only the bidet and then the front wash for, for women. And, um, but what I use it for is, is the heated seat, uh, because in the winter, like a lot of Japanese places are not really insulated. And so outside can be just as cold. I mean, inside the bathroom can be just as cold as outside in the winter. 
And so sitting on a cold toilet seat is horrible mm-hmm. anywhere. And so I, I use that. It's freaking awesome. Okay. So you might have a new calling, Jay the Plumber. You know, I you run for Congress. Wasn't there a guy who ran for it? Was it Joe the Plumber? Joe sure. the Plumber. Was, wasn't it the guy that um, questioned Obama and then like... He became a Tea Party darling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jay the Plumber. Yeah. See oh, Alexa says she has the Japanese one. Is that the Toto Washlet? That's I'm so lost in this discussion. I, I can't tell you the names of Japanese brands today's. Your mom would probably love one. Okay. But you'd have to, like most places in, the, in, in America, there's no um, outlet next to the toilet, like on the floor, because, you know, we don't do that here. So you would have to run an extension cord across to wherever the outlet is or have one installed. So that's why it's not really uh, feasible. But this one that I found was um, a non-electric one. And so you just run it through the thing. But the water is going to be cold. and There's no heated seat. So there's a trade-off. Okay. Well, speaking of trade-offs, we had a very special guest scheduled for this week. However, she could not make it. And so she is going to appear next week, hopefully. And so we will speak to her next week about the great work that she's doing in the community. In the meantime, it's just going to be us. So we've got some topics to get into. We did have two poll topics that we put up over the past few weeks that I wanted to cover because last week we didn't get a chance to. And so let me pull up my results because we had two interesting ones. The first one, if you recall, Jay, was about the separation of church and state. Yeah. Mayor Adams signaling that it wasn't a value that he held, apparently. And so we wanted to ask people, do they believe that the separation of church and state was important to uphold in government? I got some interesting responses on here. Okay. So now if you look at the numbers, 407 people answered. Wow. 94% of them said yes. 6% said no. And let's see some of the comments here. One person here says not important, but crucial. You have one person saying, I think there are plenty of examples in the world that is not a good idea, but they didn't elaborate as to what they meant by that. Someone says, absolutely, faith is a terrible basis for a government to use to establish policy. I agree. Mostly because faith is based on literally nothing, they say. I, okay. <laughs> that took a hard turn. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking they were going to go with, like, you know, faith-based extremism. Right, right. No, no, I just no. don't have any faith in anything. <laughs> <laughs> this world okay. is terrible. All cynical all the time, right? Yeah, right. I hate you and everything that you stand for. Yeah. I believe any religion should be free to discuss politics as long as they'll pay taxes. That was a point that we touched on also. Right. Now, let's see, a bit of a response here. In reply to that particular comment, the salty goose on Reddit says, if we're talking America, even if they don't, they should be allowed to discuss it. Freedom of speech means any group can talk about politics and not face legal repercussions. The separation of church and state means that the government doesn't endorse one religion over any other, and that legislation isn't used to enforce religious beliefs. Cough, cough, abortion, cough, cough, gay marriage, cough, cough, trans rights, cough. So, That's this commentary, yeah, he's got a cough, he needs a cough drop. But 
they're saying that they believe that religion, meaning, you know, even churches or religious groups, temples, mosques, etc., should be allowed to discuss politics. But the government can't endorse one over the other. But that gets tricky because if you're giving them tax credits, the government is involved in that. Right. Right. So I understand freedom of speech, yes, but freedom of speech doesn't mean you're entitled to tax breaks, right? Right. And then, so I think that that answers that uh, an earlier one. Like, if they do discuss it, then they should be they sh- should lose their tax exempt status. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think it's that cut and dry. I guess it depends also what you mean by discuss it, right? Right. I mean, obviously, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. You start to cross lines campaigning. It's fine when you keep it neutral. When you start saying, you know, oh, don't forget to vote in the election on Tuesday. That's just information for people. That's fine. But when you start getting into, we support this candidate over another, or even you start to get on that path when you start talking about how you should vote in terms of issues, right? There's a contentious election happening next month, let's say, and you know one candidate supports one issue, another candidate supports another issue. Is it appropriate in the church for them to say, don't vote for any candidate who supports that issue? Because then you are telling them, in effect, how to vote. Right. I think the... I mean, I guess it could still happen, but the danger is, you know, um, churches will will have different views than, I mean, various religions will have different views. And you don't want that being involved in the government, running of the government, especially in a, in a place where you've got so many different people with so many different beliefs and in a country that's supposedly founded on religious freedom, um, where that allows for everyone to have their own religious beliefs you don't want that to be the 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 government ruling right and so if they're giving them tax credits is that in effect the government speaking on it i don't know if it's in effect the government speaking on it but it's more like look you know we're allowing you not to well do they get tax credits or just tax exempt well same difference they're they're given tax relief from the government right yeah you know it's like look you get the special status but you know in order for the special status you know you can't uh get involved in campaigns because that crosses the line into government action is that how you're looking at it i suppose we're government sponsored or subsidized political speech because the government is paying essentially paying the church or the religious group to do what they do right i suppose um but then you have to ask yourself i guess does any entity who, who receives tax credits or monies from the government have to be politically neutral i mean that's the purpose of the not not for profit laws we see 501c3s right if they are a not-for-profit it's a specific type of not-for-profit but they're the type that for example is typically eligible for government grants and so it makes sense that if they're being funded by government sources that they're not campaigning for a candidate over another right at the same time 501c3 still can talk about political issues it can it could but what kind of talk about i guess that brings us back to the original what kind of what do you mean by talk about right well for example you know here's one queensland we'll talk about the rally that we just did queens rail corporation which is the group behind the queensland it's a 501c3 receives funding from the government 
The Queen's Link is arguably a political issue, right? The mayor is pushing for the Queen's way. The Queen's Link is saying we want transit to be held for this right of way, and we're going to use our resources to try to get people in government and all kinds of people in power to support this project. And so it is involving itself in politics. Now, what it's not doing is it's not saying we think you should vote for this candidate over that candidate. It's not getting directly involved in electoral politics, but it's getting involved in a political issue. Right. I think the, the difference there is that with religion, um, and with, with that, is it's an individual group. The, the Queen's Link is an individual yeah. group, an individual cause. With religion, it's a, it's, there are various religions that, you know, mm-hmm. and again, people's beliefs vary and you don't want the government promoting one religion over another. And if they do start getting involved in politics, there's going to be that uh, candidates and, and whatnot are going to start doing this, promoting this stuff, these other religions over other ones because of the, whatever votes or whatever support they're going to get. And I mean, that was kind of the original idea, like, um, I believe it was Jefferson that kind of floated well, this idea. Well, but can- candidates are free to discuss their religion. It's just that candidates are, but the their office, they yeah. can't push one religion over another as government policy. Right. But I mean, if it think about it, if you think about it, like, um, like lobbying groups, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and they shouldn't, but lobbying groups come in and they do the, the, the support for the, or the candidates or these PACs or support for the candidates. When they get, get into office, they kind of pay that back, right? Um, if we did it with churches and religions, then the candidates would get in office and then they would do things that would favor certain religions that supported them. And then we've got the government mm. showing a preference. And... Right. That's something we don't want to get into, even though it's a very, let's see, uh, not very good kept secret that, you know, you don't really become president unless you say you're Christian. (laughs) You know what I mean? Up until now. I mean, that might change at some point in the future. Right. At some point in the future. But in in theory, we're not supposed to. But in practice, like every candidate pops up, like when Obama was up and when um, what was the, the, the Republican guy, the Romney, Romney, right? Um, even with JFK, because um, he wasn't—he he wasn't Christian. He was Catholic. Well, Catholic is, is a form of Christian. Yeah, but it's Protestant, right? And so, like, there's this this unspoken thing. Like, you have to prove that you're a Christian. Oh, Romney, well, he's this crazy Mormon, or Obama, he might be Muslim. Um, and it's like you have to prove. No, 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 I'm Christian. Right. Even McCain had that moment where I was thought McCain got too much credit for it, but I guess because of how negative that election was becoming, they mm-hmm. saw him as a bigger man at the time. But remember that person at the town hall he did, and they were like, uh, oh, Obama, he's an Arab, the woman said. And he had to say, no, 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 he's not. He's a good she family man. She said he was Muslim. No, no, no. The way she phrased it was, I don't trust Obama. He's not, he's not, he's an Arab. That's what she said. And he said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, he's not. And he said, he added, he's a good family man. And I'm thinking, so if he was an Arab, he couldn't be a good family man? Like, why is that the response? Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah, I remember McCain got got credit for it, for correcting her um, inaccuracy, her, her blatant. Right. Even, and, and let's be real, 
it was his campaign that was largely responsible for those negative attacks. He wasn't saying it himself, but right. he put the ads on TV. They had Sarah Palin running around saying it. Yeah. So it was kind of a monster of his own creation. Yeah. And then he got credit for trying to tame that monster that he created. Right. All right. Yeah, James in the chat. I thought she said Muslim too. I, I'm pretty sure. I thought she said. Watch the video. I saw the video not long ago. Ooh, the gauntlet's been thrown down, James. But yeah, I remember that moment though. Yeah, it was an older woman. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like if we're talking separation of church and state, you know, we don't want, we don't want that. That we don't want the government promoting one or the other, and right. and even. Even the ones that are, might be pushing for it, saying, oh, no, whatever, because they want things to be a Christian country or so or whatnot. They still have an issue with, like, say, um, Sharia law, which would be basically church running government or church principles in government. Well, not church. Right. But that would be or yeah, wish. religious. Yeah. Yeah. So the Quran. Yeah. Right. So anyway, and that's something also we had mentioned. So. When people say that they don't believe in a separation of church and state, do they mean that it should be their own particular religion <laughs> over another? And I think that's what what it is. It's like they're only thinking from their religion. Like, yeah, our religion should run it, but okay, mm -hmm. what about if that religion ran it? Right. And there's also a difference between the government and the electorate, right? So to your point about how all the presidents have been self-professed Christians, but that's also just a reflection of the people who live in the country. I mean, it's been the largest group demographically. And so you would expect something like that. I don't know if that's really separation of church and state, but I guess there's a the danger that if the government is speaking on it, it, it kind of puts the thumb on the scale even more. Well, I think it's, I mean, what I, I think in that, in that regard, one with, with presidential campaigns and such, there's kind of that, unspoken pressure for the candidate to be christian sure um so even if it's the electorate or not it's like regardless of what you are it's kind of that pressure that you you be christian um and then the you know as far as tilting it one way or the other again it's it could be you know what if what if it was you know everyone was rastafari you know like are certain people going to be upset if they're promoting certain things for that or, or what if they don't what if whatever this religion believes in i mean think again okay muslims and jews there's this historical right adversarial relationship and would we want either one to be at the head of the government then we're in the mix of a culture war or religious war in the government that you know is really something that's more private so you think the separation of church and state is important to help us move away from this public pressure that candidates have to be Christian? Do you think they're related somehow? No, I'm just saying that even though we have this separation of church and state and we, you know, this is supposed to be one of the guiding principles of our country, it's unspoken. It's kind of an unspoken thing that we do have this pressure on candidates to be Christian. So there is a government leaning, so to speak, towards one religion over right, the other. Right. That's what you're saying that okay. So, so then you are saying if we didn't have separation of the state, that effect could be even worse. Yeah. If you have the government saying, well you must be a Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I mean any any candidate that is not Christian is going to be questioned like more heavily. 
if it's if they're Jewish, if they're Muslim, whoever, if they're running for president, and even if different flavors of Christian, if you're not a specific type of Christian, like we just mentioned with with JFK, because mm-hmm. um, I mean, what he's, I think he was the first or only Catholic president. No, he was the first. Biden is the second. Okay, and so like that was a big deal. Like, yeah. Um, even though, like you said, it's, they're still Christian, but no, you're not this type of Christian, and so that becomes a, a problem. Right. Well, we do have most people here. Like I said, ninety-four percent saying that they believe in separation of church and state. Out of those over 400 responses. I think it's a good thing. I believe in the ship separation of church and state too. So as do I, and I would hope the mayor would see something like this and maybe rethink his position. Right. And there's nothing wrong with having your faith, but that's not what you're, that's not what you're in office to do. You're not elected to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now on the other question, if we're looking at a possible system-wide collapse, should the government use taxpayer money to bail out the banks? Right. On this one, it leans heavily towards no. In fact, 80% no, 20% yes. That they shouldn't bail out the banks, even if it means a system-wide collapse. Correct. Now, wow. here are some responses I got off of that. Captured Robot says, one shady bank went under in America. The world's banking system remains solid. Straight Dope 3 on Reddit says, why should banks get to privatize profit but socialize loss? Mm. Like that. Mm, that's a good point. It's a good one. That's a good point. The point about um, the World Bank's being solid and, it, you know, I did read that the bank problems that we were having, those two banks failing, um, some of the ripple effects were, had reached Japan as well. For sure. So, I mean, we're in a very global economy that a lot of things are interconnected. Right. And so it could be further reaching uh, consequences besides just in this country. But does that, you know, does that warrant, like the guy said, having, you know, socialized, uh, whatever, however you put it. Socialized loss. So he's saying that they want to have it both ways. Right. Right. The profit is all for themselves, but right. the loss is our shared responsibility. <laughs> right. And then that's even, and if it's taxpayers, that's people who probably who might not even be your customers. You don't right. even have money with you. Um, but there was a couple of responses we got on YouTube. Um, one said, yes, the deposits. Yes, but for the deposits, not for the investments, which is what Biden was talking about. When you're saying that you know we're going to make sure that the that the depositors are whole, but the investors they knew it's investment. Any investment's risky. We're not going to cover them. Um, but another one brought up a point that I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, this person said, "It's simple. Treat it like any other investor. Valuate the bank. The amount of taxpayer bailout is the percentage of ownership the taxpayer now has in the bank. Hmm. So if the taxpayer is going to be used to bail the bank out." then we own the bank at that point. However much we use to put in, we own that. So then, so then for profit, we'll come back to the taxpayer. Right. But how would that work in terms of decision-making? I'm assuming it wouldn't if you've got hundreds of millions of people who own this bank now. Well, it would be, it would be instead of individual people, it'd be the government, right? So that would be, say, 
whatever the valuation is of the bank, we put in 20%, then the government owns 20% of the bank. And so the profits, 20% of those profits go to the taxpayers. Hmm. So then it becomes, you know, and maybe they can eventually pay it off and buy, you know, buy out the taxpayer and get back on their feet. So when you say it goes to the taxpayers, is it spread out amongst all the taxpayers? Are they actually getting money back or is it just going into the government coffers they can spend now? The government coffers, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine the government coffers. Because otherwise, you're going to have to cut like 300 million checks to people. So I think it goes into the government coffers and then they use it for as if it's taxpayer funds. So I thought that was which in theory should lead to them taxing less because they've got more money now in theory. Right. So I think, you know, I think that was a pretty interesting point that I'm, I don't know if I've heard it brought up before. Hmm. Any company that gets bailed out by the government. Okay. Well, the government owns should own a portion of you proportionate to what they bailed you out for. And so that means now the taxpayers have have a revenue generating asset. I think that's a perpetuity. Um, I mean, it, I guess it depends on the deal, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's in perpetuity or they can say, you know, until set up a program where the, the, uh, the bank, for example, in this case, the bank could buy out the taxpayer. So if they got 20% ownership, then they would have to eventually buy out the government for that 20% that they own. And then they can be back to their own, uh, right. make themselves whole again. Okay. But I think that was a pretty interesting, um, it's an interesting idea for sure. Yeah. So, um, Lixa says, I like that. I'm assuming that she's talking about that. Uh, Robbie in the chat says the government will waste the money on something else. That's, that's probably true. Yeah. But, yeah. But I think if, if the government, if the taxpayers are on the hook for what the, what this private company's failing is, then they should, we should get something out of it. Right. Well, the government doesn't do all bad things. I want to shout out the senators and assembly members who sent me the certificates that I posted. Really blown away by this, Jay. This is for the Lions Club. And I've mentioned that we worked to establish a local Lions Club here in South Queens. It's not just for Ozone Park. It's for Howard Beach and Woodhaven as well, because there was no local lines in these areas. And I was adamant myself that we include the greater communities around Ozone Park. So we've got the Ozone Park, Howard Beach, Woodhaven Lions Club. Shout out to everyone who's been a part of this great new club. We started it really during COVID and didn't have much of an opportunity to get it off the ground that we wanted to until now, until recently. And we did a big induction ceremony and it was big. In fact, the Lions, as far as I understand, as an organization, is the largest service organization in the world. And mm-hmm. um, I believe our induction was the largest ever in our district of the Lions organization. And um, it was really good because you had everyone from these different neighborhoods coming in and being inducted, standing together and saying, we as a collective now are going to put our heads together and provide services to the seniors of our communities. And so we've got some great initiatives in the works that the Lions are gonna be sponsoring. And I'm really excited about that. Now, I received a citation from Chuck Schumer, US Senator, State Senator Joe Adabo, 
Assemblywoman Stacey Pfeffer Amato and Assemblywoman Jennifer Rajkumar. Um, I thought that was really cool because up until, I don't know, a few months ago, no one ever gave me any kind of citation. I made the joke that it's good to finally get one. It's not from a camera because that's a citation I usually get. I get a ticket in the mail for going through, not even going through a red light. It's usually going too fast because they lower the speed limits so much and it's hard to get used to sometimes. But this is a good citation to get. So very happy. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice thing. It's a nice thing. You know, it shows that your efforts are not unappreciated. Right. Yeah. And you put in effort. So, I mean, it's good to, that they recognize that you're out there and you're, you're, you're doing stuff. So, no, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now the group is excited to get to work on some of these great initiatives. I was also able to sponsor two people. Shout out to Brina and Jennifer, who I was able to sponsor into the lines. And they're really excited to get to work on these projects, too. Did they give you, a, like, a gift card? A gift card? No. Yeah, with the citations. Like, they shouldn't even give you a gift card to, like, <laughs> like Applebee's or something. They so give me a piece of the bank that they bailed out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wish. Absolutely. Yeah. They give you. They should have gave, given you a lion. I did get, I don't have it with me now, I'm in Maryland, actually, but I did get pins. Lions pins. One that said charter member, I think, on it. One that said sponsor on it. So it's pretty fancy. Nice. No, that's awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I do think that services for seniors are lacking. I think that that's certainly an area that we need more of, and it's good to not rely exclusively on the government, but on groups like this who can come in and fill some of these gaps and say, you know what, we're going to take on some of this responsibility ourselves. And part of it, sure, is advocating for the government to do better by our seniors. But part of it is simple, you know, honestly, part of it is let's have a program where we're going to be responsible to check in on seniors in the community. We'll have a whole list of people. This is the person you're going to call and visit and everyone is responsible because we've had some horror stories in our neighborhoods over the past few years where people passed away in their homes and their body wasn't discovered for weeks or months later. Sometimes, you know, they would die without a will and, you know, who's going to get their assets now they have vacant properties and, and there's, you know, all this stuff happening. It's really a nightmare surrounding these poor seniors who weren't taken care of. Um, there's no reason that should be happening. So if the lions can step in and say, all right, we're going to make sure that people can get wills done and that they're, you know, if if they do pass away, we know who's going to be responsible and who's going to inherit their property. And it's not just going to sit vacant in our community for years. We know what's happening. We're on top of all this. And we're going to give people the help that they need while they still are here. Right. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of checking in and, and calling them or maybe helping them with their grocery shopping, whatever it is. Small things can go a long way. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's a good, these types of organizations are great. I think what, what I wouldn't want to happen is I wouldn't want the government to rely on these organizations picking up the slack for things that they're not doing. Like, right. Um, and I remember, I don't remember what it was, but it was in one of the, one of the presidential campaigns. Uh, it was one of the Republican candidates and they were talking about healthcare and it might've been the one with Obama or whatever they were talking, they were trying to get the healthcare passed. And, and uh, he was saying, it might have been in the debate, he was saying, oh, basically, we don't, why do we need this? You know, when I was, when my day or oh, the church, the church, the church used to pick it up and the church. Was that Rexham Forum? It might have been. But the church shouldn't be the one, we shouldn't rely on, shouldn't rely on it. 
We're right. going to no, absolutely to do absolutely. the job Even of like the government. Perfect example. We started the food pantry during the pandemic. Um, we were so happy to be able to do that. And that was great. And we need more things like that. But absolutely. the government shouldn't say, okay, now you have food pantries. So we don't need to take care of people. Don't have to look after people anymore. Right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. The government should, you know, that should, like I said, those organizations are necessary. They're needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the government shouldn't sit back and like, okay, well, that you got that covered. Um, we're good. No, no, right. you have a job to do still. Uh, part of what they can do is fund more programs like that if they are doing the work. Right. And use them as, yeah, to, to fill that void. But they need to be funding it if they're going to be doing it. But, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do everything that they can to help it out. Yeah. So, But no, that's that's great. Those those types of organizations, like I said, are needed. And, and, and really especially if you're talking about helping the elderly i mean it's a it's a big issue it's going to be even more so in the future as people are having less and less children mm. um, it's just like in japan has a birthing crisis um, um i know my mother just sent me an article um it was i think it was a cnn article there was this one village in japan that they were rejoicing because they had the first birth there in 25 years um in a village the first birth 25 years yeah, um, because a lot of a lot of villages and small towns are going under in Japan because there there no babies being born, and the country is in such a birthing crisis that um, they know at some point they're going to come to this reckoning because there's way more elderly than there are younger people who are the ones that fund the the you know social systems and the healthcare and this and that. People working fund it for whatever, but if you're going to have less people working, less young people. The more older people, you're going to have a big budget deficit. Um, as it stands right now, adult diapers outsell baby diapers in Japan. In the whole country? In the whole country. Wow. Because there's such a heavy um, skew as far as population of elderly versus um, babies being born. I saw a story not long ago about how a lot of younger people, I think it was mostly young men in Japan, we're just giving up on trying to find girlfriends and get married eventually. They just weren't even interested anymore. A lot are, um, and women too. They're just, um, one, one of the factors is, you know, things are getting more expensive, um, for one. Um, some of the stuff people have said they've kind of commoditized different parts of the relationship. So you can go to, if you want female company, right, you can go to a hostess bar, right? And you go in, you pay like, you pay like, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever and uh, 50 bucks, wherever the place is, depending on the type. And, you know, a nice looking young lady sits with you for like an hour and drinks with you and, and basically tells you how awesome you are. Um, some places they have cuddle cafes where like, if you just need to be held, you go in and you pay an hour for you lay in a bed and someone cuddles you. Um, and so people say they commoditize different parts of relationship and you mix that with the culture that's already a little bit uh, conservative on the surface and very shy and non-confrontational and this and like this. And so people get into these bubbles of wanting to be so or just do their own thing and they think a relationship's kind of a, a, a headache. Is it possible that social media has a role in that in terms of making people more to themselves and not interacting with others as much in person. I think I think the role that it would play. I don't think it's the cause, but I think it's it's an outlet to maybe fulfill that loneliness void, right? So I think even if if social media didn't exist, I think the problem would still be there. But 
now with social media, they might have less of depression. They might have less of loneliness because they can fill their mind with some other activity or get involved in something else. But I think it's just, I think part of the culture was going this way anyway, where people are just alone and separated and don't want to be bothered. Or a big thing in Japanese culture is not being a bother on other people. So if you've got some issue, like for example, um, elderly committing suicide is kind of an issue as they think, okay, look, I'm old. uh, I don't want my family to have to take care of me. And so they'll go step out in front of a train and commit suicide to not be a burden on someone else. Right. You also mentioned that there is part of the workplace culture there where they'll move a young professional to a different city hours away, potentially. Um, that's very hard for a family to keep up with, I'm sure. I'm sure maybe people will say, look, why would I want to get married if this is what I have to be subjected to in the workforce? Right. And that's another factor. Um, and it's not even just the young professionals. I mean, all, all ages. And then the company would just be like, OK, well, you're going to go live here for two years. OK, and then I'm yeah. here for two years then right. here. And so if you've got a family or you're trying to start a family, it makes it more difficult. That's what I mean. If you're younger, you might be thinking, hey, maybe I shouldn't be starting a family now because what kind of pressure am I going to be putting on them if this is going to be subjected to in the workplace? Right. So it's very common for, say, a a family, you know, husband and wife, they have a child and then the wife and the child live in, in their family home that they've bought. And the husband lives in some other part of the country and he's being moved every couple of every couple of years. And he comes home, um, you know, on the weekends or comes home a couple of times a month. And this is so common that a lot of companies have uh, just like you might have a, a commuting allowance to commute to work and they pay for like your, your, your train fare or whatever. They have this can be part of the package. Like, yeah, we pay for you to go home uh, twice a month to, to visit your family type of thing. Like, it's, uh-huh. it's really crazy. And so so some of the younger generation is like, look, that's ridiculous. I don't want to do that. And so they're trying to, they shun some of these types of companies or ask about it, but it's a small minority that's doing that. So, well, I guess it's going to take more people speaking up to see the change that we want to see. Absolutely. And speaking of that, I've been very vocal about this piece of legislation that I believed in called the State of Origin Bill. I have went on Democrats Abroad's forum that they did via Zoom. I spoke about it and we recapped it here a few months ago whenever we did that, where I got a very popular room going. Remember we, we broke off into these private rooms after and allowed people to join my room to talk about my proposed legislation. And then the host of the panel from Democrats Abroad put the question out to the people who were there asking, okay, so what are you going to do? What are you promising to do to take action as a result of this meeting? So you're not just leaving this meeting and not following up on it. And a lot of people said they're going to support Mike in this endeavor to get this bill passed in New York. And that was very cool. Well, I've been speaking with an assembly member about sponsoring it. And we've been going back and forth about language and different logistics with it. It turns out through our communications, we discovered that the bill was not only introduced, but it passed and was signed by different people, right? By a different senator member and another senator who we weren't expecting to carry it. But it's law now. And this is kind of a shock to us because we were trying to figure out 
the steps that we would need to take to get it introduced, what needed to be changed in the draft and how, how we're going to go about this. And we found out, no, wait a minute, it's actually already law. Um, it's something that I've been advocating for for years. And yes. so it's quite possible that that idea that I had put out there sparked this. But nonetheless, you've been uh, jacked. Well, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's not even about that. Well, what it is, is if you are jacked with a gun, now you'll know where that gun came from. And that's really what the point of it is. The point of it is to show where the guns are coming from that come into New York. Um, Of course, there's this talking point that's out there that gun laws don't matter because criminals are going to get them anyway. And so the argument goes gun laws only affect the law abiding, right? Because on its face, you might think, okay, they're the ones who would care about following the law in the first place. If you're a criminal, you don't care about what the gun law says, you'll do what you want to do. That's what the argument says. It's not really based in reality in terms of how the world operates, because what we find is that the laws actually do have a lot to say about the availability of the guns that are out there, because the guns have to come from somewhere. They're trafficked into New York. And so... Where and that was one of the things. That was one of the, the excuses that these um, people who are opposing gun regulation would say, well, yeah, well, New York's got strict gun gun laws and look what happens up there with gun crime. Exactly. Exactly. So if people are going to say that, isn't it useful then to know exactly where the guns are coming from? So we know what's happening here, what the actual reality is. Is it just a talking point that the guns don't gun laws don't mean anything? Or are they meaning something? Because we have seen data even before all this showing that 85% and up of the guns recovered in crimes in New York came from other states. So we had seen that already. And we had seen what the biggest culprits were in terms of just raw data. But this takes and a step states that were lax on gun laws. Exactly. Exactly. Virginia was a big one. Uh, North Carolina was a big one. Even Pennsylvania was up there. But if you look at these laws, it is certainly easier to go into a store or anywhere in those states and buy a gun. And that's what was happening. The guns were coming from a lawful source originally and being trafficked illegally into the state. So what this database now creates is an opportunity for people to go online and look at not just the raw data in terms of overall numbers, but each individual crime. If the gun is recovered and we know this gun came from a certain state, the state now has an obligation to put that online and show you where that gun came from. And so this becomes a very personal thing because if a gun is used to victimize someone on your block, your neighbor, God forbid, someone in your family, yourself, whatever it is, you can now go online or you'll be able to once these come out, you'll be able to go online and check exactly where that gun came from. With state, actually, it went a step further, county of origin too. And so hopefully this is going to be very illuminating and be able to have a real conversation because we've talked about this frustration that it's fine to have different perspectives on what should be done, what the policy should be. We do that all the time. That's why we call this nuance. We like looking at things from different angles. That's great. And that's what we should be doing. But in order to get to where we want to go, to even have that conversation productively, we have to start with the right, the same set of facts. We can't all have our own different ideas as to what the reality is, what the facts are, because then we're not going to be able to solve any problems. We're going to be solving two different problems, and we're just going to be arguing with each other. So let's actually see what the data shows, and let's put it out to the people. Let's make it very transparent so that we can then have a conversation on what the policy should be based on what we know the facts are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if, like you said, for example, Virginia, there was a lot of guns that were coming into New York from Virginia. You've yeah. got now you've got the data and 
you can point and say, look, Virginia, look, look what's happening here. Like you need to do something. Right. So, yeah. And you could, you could, for lack of a better word, shame these other states, other places. Let's say someone comes in and commits a massacre in New York. We want to know where that gun came from. The public wants to know. If it came from Virginia, if it came from South Carolina, wherever it happened to come from, well, we should go back to those states and say, hey, you might want to change your laws because your guns from, from over there are massacring our people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know people are going to say, well, well, people kill people, the guns don't. But it's again, it's, it's about the availability of these weapons. Do we want the criminals? Because everyone says that the criminals have the guns. Do you want them to have the guns? Right. And if you don't want them to have the guns and you need to decrease that availability. Right. Right. So. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great. So it sounds like it's a good, good thing, the laws in there. And hopefully um, it gets replicated nationwide yeah. and then becomes even more of a useful tool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then if we're seeing that illegal guns are coming in from states where it's easy to get them legally, then we know that in order to stop people committing crimes, from having them, we should affect these laws because you can still have laws that enable law-abiding people to get them and people who have a right to get the people who should. Like we're not saying that that there should be no Second Amendment. I'm not saying that. No. I'm saying that we want to keep them out of the hands of people who we don't want to have them. We're going to do that. No. And it shows then, you know, um, definitively, you've got data definitively that yeah. shows that there needs to be some sort of a cohesive national agreement in, in legislation. If you're going to a place where it's very easy to get a gun legally, you know, they can very easily get it. And then they're taking it somewhere where they have stricter laws and you can see that, okay, well, here's a weak point. Now we have a case to make something that's uniform across the nation so that these things don't happen. Yeah. So. yeah. I do want to shout out Assemblywoman Richardson, who I used to actually hang out with a bit in Albany when I was working in the state Senate. Sometimes we would hit up these after hours cocktail parties and you know a group of us would go and we would uh, you know hang out at these events and so definitely shout out to her and also senator mike Janaris, who's local he talked he comes into ozone park but actually uh, they were the sponsors of this legislation well yeah shout out to them that's what's up so yeah no very good and the reports have to be published quarterly and so when the first one is available. I'm looking forward to seeing it, and maybe we can look at it together on here. And now, do you know if it's going to be like a, a searchable database online? Well, you, if you go well, in, you put in like the serial number, and then it gives you the thing to anybody, or is it going to be in a, a like you said, a quarterly report type of thing? It's a quarterly report. I don't know how searchable it's going to be. It's it has to be published on their website, and so I'm sure it, it's able to be searched, but I don't know how user friendly they're going to make it when they program it. Okay. So we have to see. Um, question in the chat or comment: Aren't a lot of the guns that are, that are here illegally are purchased in gun conventions? I thought I read a while ago that they're mostly by guns and gun shows, or is it in the mod? Is it the modified parts? Oh, oh the like the, the stocks, the bump stocks, and whatnot. Yeah. That's part of it too. But the thing is, this even at a gun show you're supposed to follow gun laws. I mean, and, and there were loopholes and all that, that there was an effort to close all those gun show loopholes that were out there about background checks, all that kind of thing. But, you, but the goal here is to have consistent legislation, consistent laws, so that even if you're buying a gun at a gun show, you're not bypassing any useful gun legislation that 
we have. I mean, we don't want anyone to be able to just go to a gun show and get a gun uh, that they wouldn't be able to get at a store. Right. Right. But, you know, the fact remains, most of these guns, the shows, come from other states. So it's not like they're all coming from gun shows here in New York. Right. And it's it's funny, like, um, I think there's there's some videos online and people can check to, to get guns in Japan. Like, Japan is pretty much a gun-free um, country. Um, but people can buy guns. Like, it's not like they're legal, but you have to go through certain steps, right? Um, you have to take, like, a written test. Um, and this is... And you have to do, like... This is with the police department. You have to go through classes with the police department on how to responsibly shoot the gun and store the gun, hold the gun, all like that. There's a background check. Um, safe, there's safety courses that you have to take um, that teaches you about maintenance and inspection um, and, you know, all that. And then, of course, I don't, I don't think automatic guns are allowed, but like this is even just to get a, a regular hunting firearm, like you have to do these courses and stuff with the police department. Right. And obviously you see less gun violence in areas where there are fewer guns laying around, right? Very. Yeah. It's, it's very rare that there's gun violence. Even the police don't really carry guns uh, in Japan. Um, gun violence is very, very rare. That's why, what was it last year when the, the ex prime minister was uh, assassinated with a gun that was very, um, very surprising yeah. um now, and then, where did that, that gun case, come from see that's that's what's it's kind of i, I guess interesting even though it's a, a bit morbid to say interesting in this case but um he was former a uh, former self-defense forces member so it would be like their military um and he built it so he didn't purchase it so he made that gun he put it together so that's something that also has become an area of concern. I had a conversation with someone a while back saying 3D printers were going to basically render gun laws obsolete because it doesn't matter. You, know, you, can, you can ban buying a gun from the store or anywhere else, but someone can just make it themselves now. Right. And people have been kind of able to do that um, all the time, right? I mean, what was it? Potato guns and... and oh, yeah what they call them zip guns or, or this and that. I mean, there's to some, to some degree, but with a, a 3d printed gun, you can do that much easier and it's not metal. So it won't trip up uh, metal detectors. Again, we have to look at the stats here. Are most guns used in crimes in New York 3d printed? No, no, not at the, not at the present time. Right. Not at the present time that could change in the future but not at the present time. Right. Well, speaking of what could change in the future, the New York state budget, right? We're in budget season and there was a massive rally today, 17,000 seat arena, in fact, for healthcare workers. In fact, Rakim and Dougie Fresh were performing. They were at this rally saying that the governor needed to restore funding to healthcare in the budget because in her executive budget which is her proposed budget there was a cut in some of that funding and so they're saying that the 
funding should be restored in the budget that actually gets passed. So it's up to the legislature now to put together their budget passed, got passed through both houses and sent back to the governor to be signed. Uh, 1199 in particular was the spearhead of this of this rally because obviously they're very concerned about the healthcare workers, but they're saying that the Medicaid reimbursement rate should increase 10% for hospitals and 20% for nursing homes and $700 million for safety net hospitals should be restored. Mm. The current budget that the governor proposed, as I said, cut this funding. So we'll see if it gets back in. I don't think it should be cut. I think that as we were talking about earlier, we have issues with seniors and others not being properly cared for. I think healthcare needs to be at the top of our list in terms of our priorities. Right. And, and you know, it just, it just kind of boggles the mind that healthcare, especially for seniors or something like that, like, like this is even a, something that we just have to fight over. Yeah. Like why, why is there a fight over it? And I, and I'm, I know what it is. It's, it's more about who's to pay for it. It's more of an economic issue. Um, but you would think as a country, we would be trying to have the best system possible. It just, it's just kind of crazy. 1199 President George Gresham said, we do not want to be here today. We'd rather be doing what we do best, and that is giving good health care. But we are here because we demand the resources to do the right thing. Yeah, and that's... Again, what we were talking about before, the government's responsibility is to make sure that things are funded the way they need to be so that the people can do the work, whether that's healthcare workers, whether it's people in nonprofits providing services to seniors or others. The government needs to step in and make sure that people can do their jobs and the services that they're trying to provide. And oftentimes it's a matter of funding, right? And we cut this funding, the people can't deliver resources to the folks and the community suffers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, and it's, listen, the funds, it just needs to be allocated from different places and not like we're hurting on funds. I mean, in some way we are, but you know, we just dropped billions on, on, you know, Ukraine and, and other wars that we've been doing for the past that we were doing for like, you know, 20 years, like, I mean, we need to change our priorities here. Like, yeah, well, that is federal, though, and this is New York State. But, but some of that don't they get money from the federal government as well? And it is a matter of, like you said, priority here. And you know, to be fair, it's easy for us to sure. quarterback this from Absolutely. because you know, when we say, "Hey, we want money for everything," right. there are tough decisions that need to be made in the right. budget, and sometimes you do have to make cuts, right? But again, what is the priority here? Certain things, I think, should be off limits to the extent possible. Healthcare, education, right? We saw um, CUNY and colleges, education being cut in New York. We saw even proposed tuition hikes. You know, those are dangerous because yeah. you're passing costs on to people who can't afford them. And I think healthcare and education really need to be preserved to the extent possible so that, you know, yes, that we pay taxes where our tax dollars going. I think that's where we want them going, right? We want them going to certain areas. We don't want to uh, hit the people with that bill, right? Like in the case of CUNY, you're expecting the people, the struggling students to have to come up with their families to come up with more money to go to school. 
that's not a good thing, right? We're taxing the people, we're collecting this revenue. Let's put it to good use. All these tickets that, that we're getting in the mail, right? Let's at least make sure that our tuition isn't going up and that our healthcare is funded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, overall, it, it, it helps overall, right? If, if um, we have better healthcare system um, and actually an absence of healthcare, not absence of, in addition to, there needs to be more health education um, and that needs to be taken more seriously. So we have less people that are needing to go through the education system and, and using that money. Um, but for education, wait, did I just say? I meant health, but yeah, for the education system, I mean, listen, we, you know, we have brain drain or we have uh, these positions that are coming up that we don't have the workers to be able to fill because we don't have the adequate um, qualifications, people without adequate qualifications, just like I think it was in 2008 when everything, um, people lost jobs and all this and that. And it wasn't that there weren't jobs available, is that we just didn't have people that were qualified to fill those jobs. And that's going to come down to education. If we make it more difficult to get education, then we're going to have a less qualified population and either people are going to come in from other countries or those jobs are going to go other places. Yeah. And I know someone's going to say, oh, the, the tickets come from the city, not the state. Listen, it's a it's it, Yeah, it's, it's the idea. Uh, it's it's the idea of it, right? So, I mean, in the, what was that in the in the chat? Medicare. It applies to the city as well, by the way. Sure. Yeah. So. You said there was a comment in the chat? Yeah. Um, it said Medicare reimbursement rates are dictated by the federal government. Um, and it says, I think we need to demand all level of governments need to be audited and see how much money comes in and how much is actually spent. I think that's necessary too. Right. It should be, and it should be by an independent um, body. It shouldn't be the government auditing itself unless it's something that's not going to be uh, influenced by, you know, elected officials and their budgets. Well, per city and state, 1199 is calling for a 2.5 billion dollar investment from the state into healthcare, which would include increasing the Medicaid reimbursement rate 10 percent for hospitals and 20 percent for nursing homes, restoring 700 million dollars in funding for safety net hospitals. They say the governor cut in a proposed budget, increasing that funding by another 600 million, fixing reimbursement rate disparities and continuing investments made in last year's budget to ensure higher workers for home care workers, higher wages for home care workers. Mm. What do you think about Dougie Fresh and Rakim at this rally? It's an interesting choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to find out who booked it and why, how they got involved. Um, but, I mean, look, they have these types of rallies, these types of pushes, these types of campaigns get celebrity endorsements. Um, these are homegrown New Yorkers. So... Well, that was really my question. Are they so are they celebrities at this point in time? I mean, I like it. I'm all for it. But right. It's not something I would expect. I mean, it was a big crowd, right? 17,000 healthcare worker rally. Uh, Tish James was there. Rakim and Dougie Fresh. Well, if we think about let's think about it this way. Like, I, I get what you're saying. Like, they're not really in the they're not really in the mainstream these days, you know, um, but let's think about it. Maybe the people who are making these decisions would be the people who grew up on Dougie Fresh and Rakim 
And so that would be a big, a big uh, plus for them to see them come out, right? Maybe those guys, someone in their, in their 50s or, or 60s, seeing like Future come out or Lil Yachty or somebody, it means nothing to them. They see right. Rakim. So are you saying that the average age of the healthcare worker is higher? It That's could be, but I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe the the people that are in charge of these budgets. People in charge of these budgets. Oh, so you're saying that they're trying to influence like Kathy Hogle by having Rakim come out? Or who's going to be <laughs> not influence, but who's going to? Um, what am I thinking about here? Appeal to, appeal to them, right? That's I think that could be a possibility. That could be a possibility. Like, you oh, know, you know what, Carl Hasty. Carl Hasty is definitely a hip hop head, speaker of the assembly. So I could see him enjoying. How old is he? Appearance. Oh, let's look it up. He's definitely in the age group that would know rock him. Right. So that could be a possibility. He's Who 55. Knows? 55. So he, you know, rock him would have been someone that he might have, if he's into hip hop, he would have known about. Dougie and he's also from the Bronx. And so home of hip hop, he goes, you know, he draws up the X on all the shows. And yeah. this weekend, they bring in some old school rappers often. But future, you know, yeah, might, no, mean future nothing, might mean nothing to him, even though to the younger crowd, like, yeah, they'd be like, rock him who? Future. Yeah, that's the dude. Um, so that so could be saying now that older hip hop acts can experience a resurgence based on political influence because they can reach people of a certain demographic who tend to be in power. Potentially. Potentially. I mean, didn't we just see what was the, what was the, the thing you went to and um, red man was at? Yeah. Caucus uh, weekend uh, last year. Red yeah. man was there giving a speech. Why red man? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why red man, because the issue was marijuana. Oh, okay. Red Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And Red he, Man, Method Man, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> well, no, but Red Man in particular not only is investing in marijuana business, but he's part of a political party that they formed. Right. Centered on this one issue, right? It's a one issue party. And he said it during his speech that one day they might put someone from that party in the White House, even like they're dreaming big. Right, right. It's like but an anti prohibition for a marijuana party. Right. So who knows why they why they put it on? I was just thinking that could be one option. They're thinking, okay, look, the the, the people that we that are making decisions are going to be older. Let's get someone that's going to appeal to them. Um, that could be well, one. Way. There are a lot of young people in office too. They're not all old, but by and large, they're they're older. At the state level, I don't know if that's true. In New York City, I mean, well, around the state, maybe. I don't know. I think there's a lot of young people in office in New York State now. Okay. Maybe it just was in their budget range. That was like, okay, this is all we've got. Who can we get? I don't know. Maybe George Gresham, the president of 1199, is a big old school hip hop head. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. Or it could be, you know, whoever was organizing this, you know, you've got a budget and you're going to break, create your own wish list. Like, this is who I want to see. So, you know, that's is this the biggest crowd that Rock Cam and Dougie Fresh have performed for in, in years. I don't know how many people were there. 17,000, they say. Wow. I don't know. Um, I mean, they still tour, but it's probably smaller venues, probably not 17,000. Although there are festivals that right. could be those numbers. So, right. Well, I like it. And, you know, hopefully we do get that funding in the budget. 
Yeah, I mean, hopefully Dougie Fresh came out and said they had they had six minutes to make a decision. <laughs> and as we said earlier before we came on, he did not invent the beatbox, though he is credited with being an innovator of it. Right, right. That article said he was the inventor of the beatbox, right? No. I thought that was George Santos. It, it absolutely was George Santos. He also invented the scratch as well. That's right. He was the first MC to to spit rhymes on stage. Um, and I think he did it while he was uh, being the first person to break dance ever. So. What was that line? There was a song called Old School by the Cunning Linguists. I think it went something like, I sipped fine wine with Einstein back in the day. MC Squared was his stage name and he rocked gray braids. I don't remember that line, but maybe, you know, Einstein was the first MC. That could have been. Who knows? So, all right. I wanted to get into this topic because we put it in the caption. And that's about prosecutors having liability from civil suits. And should that change? Right. There was a story that broke where a memo was uncovered. In fact, more than one memo. And we can maybe even put it on the screen to show it for those watching the video here in the DA's office. And it relates to choosing members of a jury, right? So when the prosecutors are making their case, they have to pick a jury along with the defense, they choose jurors. And there are of course strategies involved and both sides are able to strike prospective jurors and they can do it for all kinds of reasons, right? You don't have to give very specific, <laughs> you need a damn good compelling reason. It's just, you know, you have discretion to pick your jury. But with that said, you're not supposed to strike jurors for discriminatory reasons. You're not supposed to do it on the basis of race or religion. You can discriminate against someone you think is going to be bad for your case and maybe in other ways, but not when it comes to race or religion. And there's a name for that. It's called Batson. Yeah, uh, Batson violation. The Batson violation is referring to the practice of discriminatory jury strikes, right? It's a civil rights violation to do that. So there was a memo that was found, and this was in Queens, where they were trying to keep certain jurors off of cases. And let's see if I can do a share screen so you can see this actual memo. Because it starts off in a manner that you might expect it to. And then it takes a turn. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Okay. So you can see that. This was actual handwriting from a memo that was found in the files of the Queen's assistant district attorney. It says, no sympathetic types. Okay. Don't get carried away with law and order types. Then it says... No Hispanics, in a parentheses, unless citizen from other country will hate bad reputation of American Hispanics. And the next one, it says no Jews, it looks like, but it's crossed out. And instead it says no Italians if the defendant is Italian. That triangle is a Greek letter delta, which is D for the defendant. So it's shorthand that you'll see lawyers use. No Italians if the defendant is Italian. And so... Obviously, what they're getting at there is they believe that if the defendant is Italian, an Italian juror would be less likely to convict that person. Right. But it's very interesting that they chose that. They crossed out the Jews. But why are we focusing on Italians here? I mean, wouldn't this logic apply for any ethnicity? 
Right. You would think so. But there's some, it was so specific about Italians that, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, why they'd have to write that on there. And then no Hispanics, unless citizen from another country, will hate bad reputation of American Hispanics. So that seems to be saying that if you had a citizen from another country, you can't put them on the jury because they are more likely, according to this, to vote to convict an American Hispanic because they think they have a bad reputation. Yeah. And so the, the article is saying that these prosecutors are still uh, on the job. Yeah, well, they're saying they're not going to speak on it. The DA's office will not speak on this because there's ongoing litigation. I know that there's been lawsuits filed. Some law professors are actually really pursuing this hard. Right. Now, that also led to the question about liability because prosecutors are shielded from being sued as it relates to their conduct or potential misconduct as a prosecutor. And we wanted to ask that question, like, should that still be a thing? Should you have that liability, that, that, that immunity for liability, rather? Or should people be able to sue a prosecutor for their misconduct? Now, let me ask, what's, what's the thinking behind um, shielding prosecutors from um, this misconduct allegation or, or being sued for misconduct? I, yeah, I think it's, well, first of all, the way that a DA's office is structured, you've got the district attorney, but then the people who are actually prosecuting these cases are just hired by the district attorney, by the DA. They're, they're called ADAs, right? Assistant district attorneys. And so when you see a memo like this being circulated, it's in the files of one of these assistants, you know, ADAs. And so the first question you would ask is, okay, so whose liability would it be? The ADA is working on behalf of the DA. Would the prosecutor, in this case, it would be Melinda Katz, would she be sued every time an ADA uh, acted in a wrong way? Or are we only going to give it to the ADAs? I think the, the liability, rather, to the ADAs. I think the bigger question is, are we going to essentially handcuff them from doing their job by giving them the constant fear of being sued? Because... A prosecutor is going to be a very unpopular person with people that they're prosecuting, certainly, right? And so uh, what if they prosecute someone and there is an acquittal? Is that always going to lead to a lawsuit? Are prosecutors always going to be sued every time they don't get a conviction? You know, Or is it going to stop them from taking chances as a prosecutor and doing what they need to do? I mean, you understand as a lawyer, we have this adversarial system where there's the prosecution and the defense, not just in criminal case, though, you know, it's, it's in civil cases as well. I focus on civil litigation, plaintiffs and defendants, but lawyers are representing the best interests of their clients. Um, do we want the lawyer to be sued freely for a strategy that they take in a, in a case? Now, I'm not saying the answer is no, that they shouldn't be sued, but I think we need to be careful with it and maybe draw some very clear parameters here to define what would constitute misconduct that would be worthy of a lawsuit. But I think to your question of why there is this immunity, I think there's just this general idea that we have this adversarial system. The government has to make its case. The other side has their own lawyer in theory, right? Trying to say that the government didn't make its case and the system plays out that way. But you know, we don't want to make all lawyers afraid of pursuing a case or defending a case because the lawyer might then get sued. You know, so typically 
in, in our system, the lawyers aren't the ones getting sued unless they're they're themselves committing torts or, or you know breaking right. a contract or doing something themselves that's unlawful. But the, the lawyer is really there to represent the interests of the parties, not to be the party. Right. And but if and I, I think I understand that point. I think on the other side, you would think if they are free from any sort of accountability um, like that, then there's there's the very real possibility of misconduct because you know they've got like a free pass basically to do whatever to do whatever yes which is why i think that it doesn't really make sense to say that there sh they should be have there should be absolute immunity right i think that the parameters just need to be defined right because you don't want a lawsuit against every prosecutor every ada after every case i mean even if you get a conviction i'm sure you'll get people who are very upset who say, you know you know, you know what they screwed me over. They did something they weren't supposed to do. Right. You know, wh whatever it is. Um, oftentimes, even it might be their own attorney's fault. Like, for example, refusal to take the stand. Right. And sometimes a lot of blame goes around where a criminal defendant does have a constitutional right to testify um, on his or her own behalf. Oftentimes their own attorney doesn't want them to for the purpose of the case. Right. But maybe that's an issue with your own attorney. Do we want them to sue the prosecutor and allege that the prosecutor somehow was in cahoots with the judge and prevented them from testifying or whatever? You can definitely see a lot of like wacky stuff like that happening. Sure. I mean, it, what was it? Um, I mean, we've, we've seen news reports and whatnot of, of cases where people who were incarcerated um, for things they didn't commit and, you know, they might have been the prosecutor or, or whatnot was trying to force a conviction for whatever reason right. they are trying to do. And there might've had evidence that they specifically chose to ignore so that they could get that conviction or whatnot. Now, if they're free from liability, once this is found out that this person was, you know, didn't commit this crime and this is what happened behind the scenes, like they're able to just walk off and, and with no accountability that leaves them open to do it again. You need accountability, absolutely. But you know, another wrinkle in this is that they do work for the government, right? So they are government agents and there are remedies. If you're falsely convicted, for example, you can go and get your conviction overturned. Um, it takes right? time. You could also sue the government in certain cases, right? But, but it takes time. Oh, absolutely. But this would take time too. We're, we're saying now potentially the prosecutor would be open to liability. That would take time too. You file a lawsuit against anyone. Five years, ten years, it can still be going on. But as it stands now, you do have recourse. But that recourse is from the government on the whole, not the individual prosecutor who works for the government as an employee. Right. You know, and let's, let's be real. If you want to file a lawsuit, and you oftentimes see things like this where someone is wronged, a family maybe comes in and files this big lawsuit against a jurisdiction and recovers a large sum of money. They're not going to get that most likely from an ADA working in the Queens DA's office for a pretty small salary. Right. Um, but just like, let's, let's, let's take a real world example. Um, what was her name? Um, the prosecutor of the Central Park Five, what, Farstein? Farstein? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was criticized for her handling of the case. She was accused of coercing confessions um, from these guys and ignoring evidence that suggested that they were innocent. Now, they all went to prison and served time and eventually were exonerated. Um, and she's even to this day defending her actions. But 
they were exonerated. They and 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 she ignored certain evidence that that suggested their innocence. Should there not be some sort of recourse for them against her for not doing her job the the way it should have been done, for ignoring evidence like that? No, there definitely should be, and um, the DAs, um, the government in general, right, should have mechanisms that protect against that. And if nothing else, don't keep them in their jobs anymore. Right? Don't allow them to keep doing that. Right? There should be accountability for wrongdoing. Absolutely, but. Again, I'm not saying that applied in that particular scenario, but when you have this adversarial system, there are choices that need to be made. And sometimes, especially if you're on the losing side of it, you might see it as misconduct when it's really just you being an advocate for your client. In this case, it would be the government. You're on the other side. You're an advocate for your client, maybe who's the defendant, and you're showing that the government didn't meet its burden. And sure, there's arguments back and forth about, you know, are you right. doing the right thing? But it doesn't mean that it's always misconduct. So I think you, you need to be right. careful. The Supreme Court in 1976, in the case Imbler v. Pacman, created the immunity against prosecutors um, because they were worried that lawsuits would impede prosecutors' ability to do their job. And it was supposed to be to serve the public trust and ensure the proper functioning of the criminal justice system. And so... You know, it is a system we have, like I said, it's one side versus the other. And especially when you're dealing with prosecutors, people in, in the criminal defense context are going to be very upset. And I can definitely imagine oh, yeah. if the prosecutor, they're going to want to. And, and, you know, and think about this, even if they, they were convicted, I mean, because it if it's an acquittal, you might think you have more of a reason to do it. Right. Maybe you don't. Maybe it just means that the government didn't meet its burden. And again, doesn't mean that's misconduct. Maybe it means that the evidence wasn't there. doesn't mean that they were wrong to prosecute. Right. Absolutely. But. What if you were convicted? Then you might be sitting in a cell with all the time in the world. Yeah, and then you're gonna be filing off lawsuits against everyone. Right, absolutely. I mean, if if every case had like, you know, two or three lawsuits that followed up because of you know, suing the prosecutor for whatever, um, yeah, they just the system would just yeah. never work. Um there has to be there, there does have to be some way that there's accountability involved. Um Right. So maybe the no answer should be above that. Yeah, maybe the answer isn't the civil liability unless it rises to the level of, I don't know, gross misconduct or some standard that's clearly defined, not just your everyday negligence, let's say. Maybe instead the focus should be on holding them accountable in the form of losing their job, disciplinary records being shown and you know, f- files on them, strikes against them and being fired if they reach a certain level. Um, I, I think, yeah. Um that sounds good. I think to me personally, I think, for example, in the case that brought up with the Central Park Five, I mean, I think there should be jail time. I mean, you don't you're talking about putting people away and taking away their freedom. Right. You don't just ignore something just so that you can win the case. Like it, your goal shouldn't be, oh, I just want to get tick this box of winning. It's I should want to be putting away someone that actually did something wrong. If they didn't, I shouldn't want to put them away. And, and that's an important point that we right. should make because yes as we said there is this adversarial system and they are lawyers trying to win a case but there is an additional obligation on a prosecutor to take exculpatory evidence into account and not to ignore that because right. their duty to win the case is dwarfed by their duty to do the right thing for the people right and it's not forget right it's the people versus such and such the people and so it isn't about this prosecutor's record of getting a conviction it should be about doing the right thing for the people because 
the people have an interest in number one number two the person standing accused definitely has an interest in that and it's a violation of their rights for the government to come in and lock them up at all costs even when the government knows that certain evidence might prevent them from being shown to be guilty absolutely so sounds like a poll question of the week to me yeah well let's do it so the question of the week is do you believe that prosecutors should continue to enjoy immunity from civil liability as it relates to their conduct as prosecutors all right got another long one there but uh <laughs> that's not too long yeah but that it's a good question i think it's something that you know and and to be fair the the person who uh you wrote off the name of who introduced this immunity um it was a court case. Okay. And I'm sure it was probably put in, into place, or I would hope it was put into place under, um, you know, good intentions. Um, but it could be time to to reevaluate it or to look at a better way of, of doing it so that there is fairness so it doesn't open up the, the, the lane for misconduct. Right. Right. Well, we've already got a no in the chat <laughs> for the poll case. <laughs> no, they should not continue to enjoy the immunity. Yeah. Yeah. Here was a note also that which was very controversial. And this, you know, you see things like this and you start to say, wow, something needs to change in a culture here, whether that's liability, whether that's just accountability, like we said, losing their jobs. Why are people like this still working there? Right. That's a troubling question. So let me put the share screen back on here because this other note was found. Good B neighborhoods. You see, oh, here it is. You see that? Clearly, the B means black there. Cambria Heights, Hollis, St. Albans, Laurelton, Springfield Gardens. Now, I don't know what the context of this was, why they're saying this. Is, is this about the jury pool still? Maybe that's what they're saying. You want jurors from these neighborhoods because they're the quote unquote good black neighborhoods. But why is this being circulated around in the DA's office? Right. <laughs> let's not forget this is the government we're talking about we keep talking about that right how it becomes more important when the government is acting we talked about the churches earlier the government is giving them tax subsidies and therefore the government is involved in some way this is the da the district attorney this is the government right we are entrusting them to do the right thing in the criminal justice system why are they circulating notes titled good black neighborhoods right and there was another point on there. What was it? It said um, something about Greeks as well. Oh, yes. They said Steinway. What did it say? Hold on. Let's find this here. Uh, Greeks drop everybody. Greeks drop everybody. So I believe what they're saying there is similar to the Italian situation. Right. Where they're saying that they don't want to put Italians on the jury if the defendant is Italian because they think that the Italian jurors are more likely to acquit. I think they're saying Greeks drop everybody. I believe what they mean by drop everybody is they quit everybody. I think that's what they're saying. So they're saying, don't put a Greek on the jury. And mm. that, they're not even saying don't put a Greek on the jury if the defendant is Greek. They're saying right. Greek drop everybody, right? So they don't right. want to be, period. Right. And, and, and why did the Jews get crossed out? Well, why didn't their, why didn't their uh, note stand? Why did they cross right. it out? I mean, why did the Italians get singled out? You know, how yeah, are they very, determined to be good black neighborhoods? But let's let's also again. This is nuance. Um, let's let's not pretend 
like this type of discourse does not happen right um in marketing in political campaigns um in advertising uh, when you're trying to get the best either return on investment or you're trying to get the result that you want people talk about groups in generalities like this it's very it's very common sure so no, we, it's out there but i think when you see it in the files of the district attorney's office that's yeah. it gives you pause right yeah. and, and i think maybe then that uh, that leads us to question should this be out there like you said it's something that people talk about and maybe we're just used to it as a society but if you see it in official documents, you see it in government files, and you think, oh, my God, that shouldn't be in there. That's terrible. Maybe that's a signal, even maybe for our subconscious, that it shouldn't be anywhere because we're able to recognize it when we see it in the context of government. But we're used to it in other contexts. But maybe we shouldn't be, right? Because if it shocks the conscience in this context, maybe it should be troubling everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, the complaints here call on a grievance committee to conduct an immediate and thorough independent investigation into the jury selection practice, citing spoken gun documents like the one that we showed, which reflected a detailed dehumanizing ranking system that typed jurors by race, sex, religion, ethnic background, class, and neighborhood. That wow. file and the admission that these notes were used during at least two cases in 1990 prompted the DA Katz's conviction review unit to support the reversal of three convictions. So, wow. so that was very, very serious. Yeah. So it's already resulting in reverse convictions. And like I said, that is a type of remedy that you can pursue, even if you can't, as of now, sue the prosecutor. If the prosecutor does something wrong like that, you still do have recourse. You can so, importantly get your conviction reversed. So let me, as egregious as it is, as it sounds and as it looks uh, on the paper, how is this just not good jury selection strategy if you if your if your experience says right italians are not going to prosecute italians so we want to get this guy prosecuted yeah we're not going to put attack we're not going to select italians in the jury how is that not just good strategy well for it to be good strategy you have to accept the premise that all italians are most of them, I suppose, are going to act like the ones that you've seen in your experience, right. which is the discriminatory aspect of it. That's why we don't have allowances for discrimination when it comes to jury selection, because they are based on a premise that, yes, every member of this ethnic group is going to behave the same way. Right. And I asked that just to get that said, right? Because, again, it's, you know, we want to look at it from different angles. Yeah. We want to see that. But, yeah, it, it does rely on this maybe a stereotype or discriminatory aspects of it so right you know and it could be the case that more italians than not i'm not saying it is true or not but let's say it was let's say it was the case that more italians than not would acquit someone who was also italian right if if that was true if that stereotype happened to be true doesn't make it right and doesn't make it a reason to pursue that strategy maybe Strictly speaking, that would be a good strategy if you somehow knew that the data supported that assertion. But even if that were the case, should it be allowed? Because you're still discriminating. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that'd be an interesting poll, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's also worth mentioning that 
jurors do get taken off for all kinds of reasons. And yes, oftentimes they are discriminatory. Usually they're not going to tell you that's what it is because they know that that is a violation. And so usually they're more clever about, I guess they don't want these internal files to be leaked, but you know, <laughs> it would be, we don't want you on a jury for whatever reason. We, we think your shirt is too colorful or whatever. Right. And, and but right. there might be a hidden agenda behind it. Right. Absolutely. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think it, you would expect if, if, as you mentioned in the article that three cases have already been affected because of it, um, it's probably something a little bit deeper than just looking at the notes that, that we've seen in the article. Right. Right. And I think it's a matter of the culture too, right. In these offices that needs to be reexamined. That, yeah, that too. Yeah. And I think some of that even comes down to when it all costs type of mentality, you know, whatever it is, even if it's, if you know that this is a, a, a violation or whatever, it's like, okay, but still we got to win. So, you know, yeah, no, that's true. And I think lawyers, especially if they're in litigation in any form, if, you know, even if it's a criminal trial, they want to win They're programmed that way. They want to win at all costs, but they really need to take a step back sometimes and, and try to ask why they're there in the first place. What is their job really? You know, I understand there's probably pressure from above for them to win. And you even said yourself, like in Japan, for example, prosecutors won't even bring a case unless they know they're going to get a conviction. So right. now imagine you're in Queens, you bring a case, you're in a similar type scenario where you think, okay, I've got the evidence, I'm going to get this conviction, and I don't have to worry about any heat from anyone, my bosses or the public, because I know I'm solid. You kind of hype yourself up into believing that this is a winning case. You're definitely not going to lose it. You're going to get an inevitable conviction here. And then something comes up that should make you take a step back and reconsider what you're doing. I can see some people being caught up in that moment and thinking, no, I got to go. I got to go for it. I got I to win this case. If I lose the case, it's going to be um, an effect on my reputation. Maybe I might get fired or disciplined from my boss they're gonna say how can you bring in cases that you're not winning uh you know are you prosecuting people maybe then they might think that there'll be uh, accusations of misconduct because they think that they brought a case that wasn't worthy of being prosecuted and so they'd rather just suppress that information like it's certainly wrong right and we need to be cracking down against it but you can understand how someone might feel that way sure sure absolutely and like you said like even they just get caught up in it like i've got to win i'm this far in i can't give yeah. i can't back out now um, and yeah, Japan, I mean, it's Japan's famous for having a 99% conviction rate. Um, and it's because they only bring cases that they know that they're guaranteed going to win. And some of it, some of it involves some coercion, um, you know, into confessions and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there needs to be, it needs to be looked at. That, that shouldn't be the culture. Right. Right. So what would happen in Japan typically if, the prosecutor discovered exculpatory evidence during the trial? Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to say, I mean, anything I said would be speculation. Yeah. Um, but just from the culture and the, and, and the immense pressure that they would probably be under, you know, I, I'm sure someone would be tempted to, to hide it. Yeah, but I think that would be anywhere if, if right, the, right. The pressure I'm, from people above, from whatever. 
but I couldn't say guarantee what would happen. I'm, yeah, right, right. And we don't want to create the impression that even here it happens all the time either. I mean, right. obviously we are concerned with this culture that we're seeing and we think that there needs to be more accountability and we think it's a problem, but we don't want to act like it's automatic, right? Like every prosecutor is automatically going to disregard exculpatory evidence. No, you know, it, it does happen where something comes out that proves someone is innocent and the person is rightfully let go. That's how it's supposed to work. The problem That's is that it, it, it doesn't happen as often as it should be happening, which is 100 percent of, of the time in that case. If you can prove that the person is not guilty or, you know, the exculpatory evidence might not be the end all be all of the case either. Right. It could just be something that tends to, to maybe support their alibi or whatever it is. It could be like a small piece of it. But whatever it is, that should come to light and not be suppressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and on on the other side of it, there should be it should be normalized that, you know, if something like this comes up, that people can just can switch gears and let go of the case. Like, so you don't have to keep moving forward. So like a prosecutor can be like, oh, well, you know, your honor, new evidence that came up. Yeah. Um, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be something that's prosecutable now. So we might have to withdraw the case and it should be OK. It should, right? be, okay. It should be like a strike against them. The right. idea should be. To, to make sure we get the fairest outcome for the the, the people involved. Right. And that should be okay from everyone, right? No one should have a problem with that. The right. DA, the, right? The, 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 the higher ups, they should be cool with that too. In fact, it should be more than okay. That should be celebrated. I think, I think possibly what ends up happening sometimes is they may feel like that was evidence that they should have had in the, in the first place. People will say to them, how come how could you miss that like it's one thing if something just pops up and there was no way they could have known about it right it's just like new information that no, nobody knew but if it was something that was out there or that they should have reasonably found and they didn't they overlooked it they can see that as a reflection on their judgment too well you know mistakes happen yeah. i think ultimately everyone should be concerned with are we putting away are we locking up someone who's innocent regardless if if we lose the case or when to get like ultimately are we putting someone away holding someone responsible for something that they didn't do. And even if it's a mistake that I made and not bringing certain information or I read something wrong, like ultimately that should be held to the highest standard. That should be the marker there. Uh, yeah, I agree. What was that saying? It's better to let, let 10 guilty people go than wrongfully lock up one innocent person. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something like that. Yeah. yeah. So whether, yeah, what was it? Whether, uh, uh, whether a guilty man go free, uh, something like that. But yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the gist of it. But very poetically, yeah. <laughs> you fool can't get fooled again. No. Right, right. Exactly. But yeah. So, so and I think people would have more trust and faith in the system. That would go a long way if if they saw that side or if that was the normalized version of things. Yeah. So like everything else is on us to hold people accountable to this. Right. Because we can't expect change to happen on its own. You need agents of change. And really quickly, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention the Queens Link rally that we did last week, because that also was in the spirit of holding folks accountable and seeking the change that we desire. And yes, it was a very successful event. I was pleasantly surprised because it was in Ozone Park. And in Ozone Park, it is a harder sell uh, to get people to come to talk about the Queens Link. In the Rockaways, easy, right? People have been talking about this particular right of way for years. It used to be the Rockaway Beach Line. 
their commutes are some of the worst in the whole country. So anything about transportation and this project, you'll get a lot of excitement in the Rockaways. That's why we started off in October with the big rally in the Rockaways. But to try to expand now to take this to the public in other areas, it's more difficult. And I know there's been some criticism even about, well, how come the Rockaway Beachline advocates have focused so much on the Rockaways historically? And even the name of the project, it was the Rockaway Beach Line. That's what people called it for the longest. We came up with Queens Rail and now Queens Link as a way, an effort to be more inclusive and to really illustrate that this affects neighborhoods throughout Queens and throughout the city. And so that's really what we've been trying to do. But it's difficult because people in Ozone Park, people in Woodhaven may not be as mindful of it. They may not be thinking about it as much. It's not at the top of their list of priorities as transportation is to people of the Rockways. Transportation really is crucial, right? The further north you go, the less people are thinking about it, but there really should be because our job is to show people how it doesn't only help the Rockways. It helps everyone. And even in Ozone Park, it does take time off of commutes, not only to the city, it provides more interconnectivity within the borough. And so we experienced that we had a student come up to me, in fact, talking about it. he goes to high school right off Metropolitan Avenue. He said that if you had a train station there, he can go from Ozone Park right to his high school on a train. One, two, three this is the north south shot. That's just not there now. Right. There's no way to do that. now. And so it's a beautiful thing for everyone. The fact that we were able to get a large attendance, what I would consider to be a large attendance in Ozone Park, I think is, is a beautiful thing. And I think that really speaks to, number one, the momentum that this project has been building up because you're not just seeing people on the Rockways interested in it anymore. And number two, the work that the Queensland team, and that's not me, that's the, the volunteers um, in the group who are spending time in the neighborhood. And I've been helping them. I actually was able to reach out to the principal of this particular school and hook up the venue. And I've of course, been reaching out to all the community leaders in Ozone Park and elected officials, and I've been bringing in everyone to the extent possible. I've been using my network to help the group, but the group members, other than me, have been very good at going around canvassing the neighborhood and just making sure that the word is out about the Queens, like the social media, Twitter, press releases, Facebook, all that, Reddit, it's been everywhere. And yes, to see this in Ozone Park, and you can watch the link on the, the video is on my Facebook page, you can see it. We did a beautiful town hall where people were able to ask questions. And also we gave a presentation of new renderings of what the design might look like for the project and showed where we are in it right now and what needs to happen. And a big part of this is more political pressure. And that really entails going out into the neighborhoods as we've been doing and getting the people on board because whatever happens with this right of way, this abandoned train line, the people should speak on it. It shouldn't be a decision made behind closed doors by a select few. The entire borough should get to weigh in on it. And so that's what we're doing. We're taking this to the people and I'm really happy to see them responding. Absolutely. It sounds like it was a good event. And that's like you said, very positive. Um, yeah. yeah. Last question though, is, is Ozone Park one of the, the good B neighborhoods? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, it's not on the list. Ozone Park is predominantly Hispanic and South Asian at this point. South Ozone Park actually has an Italian neighborhood, so um, that might apply to the other memo there. <laughs> the other criteria. But yeah, I don't see South Ozone Park. I would put on a, I mean, I, why would I really say that? Yeah, I, it, It's offensive that there, this list even exists, right? Yeah. But the fact that South Ozone Park is left off is also offensive. <laughs> That's not a good, not yeah, a good neighborhood. Right, so was that, was that on the bad B neighborhood? I mean, come on, what are you doing? 
what are they doing? Yeah. So, but no, we need to bring this fight to all the, the neighborhoods, right? Especially the ones served by the right of way. So the right of way begins in Ozone Park and it goes up to Regal Park. You know, we need everything in between, and we need even in neighborhoods that are outside the direct right of way because it affects, like I said, it affects everyone. Everyone should have a say as to what happens to this transit asset. Absolutely. With that, I think it's time for the bottom line. Well, I got a bottom line. Huh? I got a bottom line. You got a bottom line? Yeah, don't believe everything you read online. You know, people were hitting me up saying that Wikipedia said that I was a candidate for city council this year. You know, the councilwoman apparently went to a meeting in Glendale saying that I was running for city council this year. I never said it. Now, to be fair, I set up a committee, which is what you're supposed to do if you want to take steps to even put yourself in a position to run for office, because when you launch a campaign, you should have resources ready to go. And legally, you can't raise money or spend money without having a committee file. That doesn't commit you to petitioning and to actually running. That's just what you're supposed to do to prepare yourself for the possibility. With that said, did I ever announce I was going to run this year? No. But someone said, well, Wikipedia said it, so it must be true. Guy, don't believe everything you see online. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, what, what really should have happened is they should have looked for, after hearing that, they should have looked for an announcement online from you. People yeah. contacted me directly and said I was running. And I said, no, I haven't made up that decision. I'm looking at everything, but that's not something I've committed myself to. I've got the committee, but I haven't committed myself to petitioning and, and, and to running. People would argue with me. They would say, no, but Wikipedia says you are. They think Wikipedia is a more reliable source than the person whose decision it is. Right. Yeah. So, yes. Bottom line, don't don't believe what you everything that you hear um, or see or... What was that? Yeah, so that's another one of those sayings, right? Jay-Z. Like half of what you see. Go on, is the Jay-Z line. No, but okay, but did Jay-Z have it right or did he flip it in some way? He said um, it was something about don't believe all of what you see or half of it. Half of what you hear. Even if it's spat by me. like. Well, right. But what, but what is the actual saying? I think it's don't believe everything you see and half of what you hear. Is that the real saying? Something like that. Yeah. Well, that's, don't believe everything that you see, and even less of what you hear. I don't know. That that sounds like it's. We're gonna go with that. <laughs> yeah. If not, that's the new one right now. We paraphrase our idioms. Right. right. You yeah. Can't get fooled again. You can't get fooled again. Yeah. So. Uh, so, um, Lixa, I we don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know why. Yeah, she's like, why would she say that if you didn't announce? It's crazy. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Ask. Listen, if I, if I answer that question, then I'm guilty of what I'm saying. People shouldn't do. Right? You have to ask that person who said that, not me. Yeah. Right. Right. Unless it's on Wikipedia, because we know Wikipedia is like the end all be all. It's the ultimate source for everything. So let me ask you now: Is is Wikipedia going to be changed after this? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't put it there in the first place. I, you know, I hope it's changed, but you know. After this, I'm going to check Wikipedia to find out if you're telling me the truth right now or not. Because if I go there and Wikipedia still says you're running, then that means, I guess, you were not telling the truth. It's funny that and I don't want to really fault people. You know, I'm kind of teasing a little bit. Sure. 
Sure. It's just funny to me that someone would actually say, no, Wikipedia says it. Therefore, now I got that from multiple people too. Right. They were upset. to, I, I, And to be honest, I think there were people who wanted me to run. So they were trying to say, hey, look, it's out there. It was announced already. And and, and, I, and I was like, oh, hold up. And, and they're like, no, 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 it's out there. It's out there. They were just trying to like push it's that out there. You might as well do it. It's out there now. <laughs> yeah. Get into it. So. But yeah, good bottom line, I think. Yes. Take things with a good, you know, always, always verify your sort verify the information that you're getting, you know, looking, look to, for various sources, whatever, especially these days when we're looking at, 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 you know, uh, anyone can, can write something online. Anyone can have a blog online. We've got issues with deep fakes. We've got, uh, AI that can generate things in people's, people's tone. We can, we can clone people's voices. Uh, we can do, uh, change facial structures on people to make people look like they're saying something they didn't like always, always try to back up what you're hearing before buying into it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and it is something that I've seen a lot over the past few months. I almost think that people don't want to believe someone in politics because they think that they're going to be coy about it. So like whatever, Sometimes like they get in their heads what they think the person is going to do and they believe their own ideas or other people's thoughts over even that, that person, because they think that a politician is not going to be honest. I think, I think there's some of that too, unfortunately. Sure. Sure. So with that being said, uh, we're coming to a close on another week. Uh, Check us out on YouTube at nuance show. Um, Go there, comment, like, follow, all of that. Um, if you're into podcasts, definitely get subscribed to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, wherever wherever you get podcasts. Uh, Instagram, hit us up on Instagram. Um, answer some of the poll questions, or you know, give us a follow and some comments. We always in- are appreciative that you decide to join us uh, on these Tuesdays nights. Super awesome, and uh, thank you very much. As always, we've got work to do. We'll catch you next week.